This is a production of Dirty Mo Media. Hey everybody, it's Dale Jr. back again for another episode of the Dale Jr. Download. With me, as always, my co-host Mike Davis, Matthew Dillner, Leah's in the house. we got Ernie Irvin as the guest today, and he is going to be great. What a career this guy's had. There's a lot that I need to ask old Ernie, and, and let's get the show started. All right, so uh, this past weekend, Darlington uh, really was a great race. Great race weekend. A lot of great racing all the way across the board. Trucks, Xfinity, Cup, and uh, had a lot of fun in the booth. Calling some uh, some some great action there, but also got to work with Dale Jarrett and Kyle Petty for uh, Stage 2. Uh, kind of got to get the host in that moment. A lot of fun. A little bit awkward. Uh, but you get more and more comfortable as it goes, and uh, which is good. I'm glad I got to do that because I get to host the Xfinity race for Richmond as well. So uh, sa- I think Saturday morning. Xfinity race is in the afternoon. The cup race is in the evening on Saturday the 12th, and I'll be hosting that Xfinity race, so that should be pretty awesome. You're doing the play-by-play, basically. The Rick, That's the what they Rick call Allen it. Thing. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Well, I heard uh, nothing but positive feedback on the stage two Good uh, play-by-play performance of yours. Thank you. I also saw where you were talking about, man, 500 miles. This seems like a long 500 miles. Did you say that yeah. at some point? Yeah. Um, I just said 500 miles feels like forever. Yeah. Yeah. That one did take a long time. But maybe it was because we're just so used I'll to all be honest. short races. I was uh, – so I saw the I don't, I'm, I don't, I'm not assuming that my comment, 500 miles here feels like forever. I'm not assuming that my comment started the conversation that I saw on Twitter, but I did see a conversation mm-hmm. on Twitter about the length of the race and, and most people saying, don't touch it. Right. I love it. I guess if there's any question, I don't think that the race is too long. Right. <laughs> it <laughs> just – I don't think it's too long. It does feel like forever, and I'm perfectly fine with that. Yeah. I don't want it to feel – Shorter not, than it is. You're not trying to start a movement to no, shorten the. No, <laughs> some things are good that take a while. Nothing, nothing. There was nothing wrong or false about my comment. Right. Um. But I don't want that. Uh. Yeah. That, that, that race should stay the same length. Anyhow, go ahead. Continue. Well, no. no. I mean, you, you're the play-by-play guy. <laughs> so um, <laughs> you're play-by-play all the time here. <laughs> Lead us, well, Dale. I really, you know, I had a lot of fun. Uh. And 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 we had the '77 car. Throwback, yeah. Dale Earnhardt, 1976 throwback. Dirty Mo Media on the side. Um, and I didn't even know it, but you went to the race, Mike. So you sent me some pictures of you sitting in the grandstands watching the race. Um, and you just seem to be just so happy to be back at the racetrack. Now, I, 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 I miss being at the track. I yeah. cannot wait till we can go back and work in the booth again and call the race live. Um, but what was, what was it like? You said it was pretty profound. It was, it was, it was incredible to be back. I, you know, I couldn't go inside because that's the rules, you know, but I, I, I could be on the outside. And just being back in a racetrack in a, in a live event was amazing. I also, I left with a changed worldview about racing because I spent that entire race not watching the lead pack, but watching where our car was, right? And, and, and our car with Spire Motorsports was, you know, towards the back. That's where they are. It's where they started. It's where they knew they would be racing. Uh, and yet... I didn't feel like I thought I had a, a good a good uh, uh, grasp on the totality of a race, but until you actually live life as a backmarker, quote unquote backmarker, I don't know that you got the full co- concepts of racing. And I know you guys have it a lot better than I do, just because of growing up in racing. But like for instance, 
you know, negotiating for people's tires, trying to get scuffs, trying to get whatever kind of hand-me-down stuff that you can get from a, from a team, forming alliances. This happened during the race. How did right? you know this was happening? Well, because I was, you know, I sat there with Joey Denowitz, and, and obviously is, uh, Joey is the, well, he, pl- he serves the role as the competition director for Spire Motorsports, but he is also who I uh, worked with in, in the sponsorship to begin with. And so he works for Jeff Dickerson, and, and really is plugged in into kind of the, the strategy and the development of the race team. So, so hear me out on this one. I am. What if I told you that in that race, the very race that y'all watched on television and, and that you broadcast, this race, Ross made a last lap, last corner pass for a position that mattered a, a great deal to him, so much so that Ross comes on the radio after he takes a checkered flag and it was like, Wow, my heart was racing more in that than it was yesterday in the Xfinity race, which, as you recall, he was hunting for the win in that before he got into that little accident. And so here it is. He's reacting as if he won the race. All he won was 29th place. Well, why is that? And that is because there were only two other cars on that racetrack as far as they were concerned. They go into that race with their own race. They are racing the 27 of J.J. Yaley, and they are racing the 15 of, is it Brendan Poole, I believe, the driver, yes. Brendan Poole? And those are the two drivers that they are racing. That's 32nd, 33rd, and 34th in points. The difference between those two positions in the season-ending payout is roughly $200,000. $200,000 is what they are racing for against those guys so they're playing this cat and mouse game this whole race now this is just i'm 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 living life uh in a completely different scenario for for this race so the feeling was the 77 we got to beat those two cars we feel like we can out tire them is what joey said we feel like we can out tire them and i said well what do you mean you're like well because of our sponsorship in large part because of our sponsorship you know they were able to get a full boat of tires which would be what eight or eight or nine sets Right, they didn't feel like the other two could do that. They thought that they all they had was scuffs for stage three, and I said, "Well, how do you know?" Well, we just because this is what this is the life we live every week. It's week to week. I said, "Well, how do you know if they're gonna if we're gonna outtire them? How are you keeping that news from them?" I said, "Do you got all our tires set out?" No. I said, "Well, where are you? we only got three sets set out. This is to start the race." Oh. I said, well, "Where are you hiding the other sets of tires?" And he goes. We'll buy them during the race. What? Yep. We'll buy them during the race. Yep. I said, shut up. He goes, yeah, no, no, we'll, we're not going to buy them until we need them. So as it played out, stage three setup, all you're trying to do is stay, If you, you, you know you're going to get lapped. Yep. Just don't get lapped and not them other two guys, uh, you know, like it, it's better if everybody gets lapped or whatever. And so – that's the way it sort of played out. Now, Brendan Poole got lucky just in, in stage three with uh, uh, the leader was about to put him a lap down, and the caution came out. He was able to stay a lap ahead of the other two cats. So then it became a, r- a race between Ross and J.J. Yaley, and they are fighting for 30. They're fighting in 31st and 30th place. And I'm telling you what, man, that race was incredible. Ross puts on his new tires. This was the strategy. We're going to out-tire him. J.J. is a second slower. But he takes the wave around, and so when they go restart the, like, the last 30 or 40 laps, he's got a huge amount of ground to catch to catch Yaley. 
he catches him on the white flag lap, going through all this traffic, and then passes him coming off of four and, and gets a nose and momentum out because he took high line, got the momentum, took the checkered flag. And I swear to God, you'd have thought that we'd won the dang race <laughs> if it was for 29th. And it was just, it was, I was intrigued by the rate. There is a race going on that TV doesn't capture and can't capture, by the way. In fact, without all the context that I just gave you, I don't know how you can sit in the grandstands and really be able to identify these little micro races that are going on, but they're super important. And, you know, Peter Suspenzo, who's like the act, the, the, you know, the oldest active winning crew chief in the, in the sport is right there, uh, you know, uh, you know, executing this thought-out strategy that all had to do with tires. Now, I said, next week when y'all go to Richmond, could they be out-tiring us? I mean, he's like, yeah, it's a week-to-week thing. Wow. And so it really gave me an appreciation for a, a lot of these teams. And, and I think that a fair question would be, well, why do they do this? Like, you know, like, why does Rick Ware racing, what's in it for them? Yep. And I think that the answer to that is that uh, it's like everything in life, it's all relative, right? It makes sense for them because they're not spending what, these other cats are spending like Childress and Hendrick they're spending what's within their means and if they get the you know one additional position in points that's probably the difference of a hundred thousand dollars right there and then that's going to be bonus the other thing I thought was compelling is that they budget their race team now think about this you know how we always know what the winner's purse is they budget based off of what last place finishes and they assume that they're going to finish last place so that way anything they get beyond that you know, in front of that, it's just bonus, man. Dang. That's just more money they can put to the race team next week. And that, that is just a – listen, I've been fortunate enough. I've been in the sport for 19 years, been with you for 17, Dale. Um, and, you know, we, we, we live a blessed life. Sure. <laughs> but I really appreciated what Spire Motorsports – also, Peter Suspenzo and Ross gave you a shout-out uh, on the uh, pace laps to begin. Really? What yeah. was it? Just, they said, uh, we want to thank Dale Jr. and Dirty Mo Media for being on board with us. Nice. I know, right? So, yeah. Did you get a, the stripe? I want to know if – Now, know. he kept it clean. Jeez. That was another thing they said. You know what makes Ross so different than, than a lot of the other drivers that even may race their cars, that he – races so well in traffic and i said what do you mean by that he goes well when he gets lapped he doesn't lose time and a lot of drivers lose time when they're getting lapped but but they like him because he knows how to race in traffic without losing a bunch of time because in their race it matters right yep and uh he, he put on a well of a show and on uh saturday too so well i you know i, so I got a, a lot of respect for, for him Ross. he he was uh he was up on the wheel even in this race, yeah. but also included having to keep the car clean. Yeah, I've been wanting to get uh, Timmy Hill on our uh, podcast oh. to have to have this same conversation that you just experienced in the. Uh, so Timmy Hill run, runs his own truck, and I've wanted him to come on here and explain to us how he does it, right? And talking about little things like budgeting for last place, right? Just what does Timmy do to to survive with his truck team? Uh, he just finished in the top ten for the first time this season at Darlington with his very own mom and pop's truck team. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, I I want to know more. Yeah. So, um, and I also think um, we're going to talk to uh, Ernie Irvin here in a moment, and he's going to give us a lot of more, a lot of a few other guests, future guests' ideas 
in that conversation. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. I, I, mean, I, I I really appreciate it. It was fun. Did y'all have fun, you know, having a Dirty Mo Media car out there? Dude, you kidding me? It was good. It looked good. Too. It was a good-looking race car. We wore the shirts and at the house, and we are just like, it was like If a party. anything, for the shirts. I mean, I'm, I'm so... <laughs> hell yeah. <laughs> I'm so happy they had the shirt. I am. They, yeah, They're good yeah. shirts. Did Joe you see Matt, any shirts out there? Uh, no, well, they weren't out there. Uh, oh, yeah. That's Joe didn't put them... Uh, they couldn't get them. Yeah, couldn't get them to the customers. Enough. Right. Well, hopefully uh, we'll start seeing some of them shirts at the racetrack. Yeah, that'd be cool. It's a good shirt. All right. A little bit of news today. Big news. NASCAR announcing that California Speedway or Auto Club Speedway will be engaging in an aggressive plan to redevelop the racetrack into a half-mile high-banked track that will produce fast and exciting short track racing. Mm. Yes. Wow. Hashtag more short tracks. Yeah. Yes. It will create a unique one-of-a-kind racing experience for fans and reinforce NASCAR's commitment to the region. So, I love it. All right, if this is true, I'm down. We're going to lose a pretty awesome racetrack. California, the multiple grooves, running the fence, it's just such an amazing place. Uh, but, yeah, the West Coast needs a little taste of Bristol, needs a little taste of short track racing. And if this is what we're going to send out there, it's really going to strengthen our sport. Maybe in the years to come, more importantly, probably in the next decade, two decades, having a, having some of that action for the fans out there is going to do so much for our sport on a national level. I've felt that way for a really, really long time. So it's awesome news uh, that, yeah, and it's a new short track. We're going to have new short yeah. track. Man. Is this the beginning? Remember the boom of the mile and a half where everybody wanted to build one all over the country? Yeah. Are we getting ready to see a land rush of short yes. tracks into the NASCAR Cup schedule? Wouldn't that be yes. something? <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? Marcus! You, you're, you're beaming Make right Atlanta now. Short track. Beam. I don't think you beamed like this yes. on your wedding day. I don't think you beamed like this when Isla was born. I'm excited about this, but this man, cool. if there's like 10 more coming behind it. Yes. Whew. Awesome. I'm I'm very excited right now. Holy crap. Hey everyone, Dirty Mo Media President Mike Davis here. Excited to tell you about one of our newest sponsors at Dirty Mo, Airbnb. The irony here is that Airbnb is new to Dirty Mo Media, but Dirty Mo Media is not new to Airbnb. It has been accommodating us for years. And if you are a race fan, and I think you are, you know why. I mean, you've booked hotels at, uh, during a race weekend. They're, the prices are insane. You're stuck with these unreasonable multi-night minimums. Whereas Airbnb, you got many choices, all within proximity, and it ends up being way more affordable. Now, I'm not only a frequent Airbnb guest, but my wife and I are also Airbnb hosts. And you should be too. We've been doing it for years. I'll tell you why. We have an investment property that we realized it could be earning additional income through Airbnb. You don't have to have an investment property to do that. You could just find extra space in your home. That works too. It all could be making you some extra cash. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. All right, we got the guests, so let's uh, let's bring them in. Ernie Irvin. All right. Let's get to Ernie. Now the 1991 winner of the Daytona 500 is Ernie Irvin. Is Ernie Irvin. Is Ernie Irvin. But I'm, damn, I'm getting tired of getting swept up in all his accidents. I don't want to get hurt driving one of these race cars any more than anybody else does, and this looks like the kind of guy that could hurt you. I said, I'll tell you the same thing I told Earnhardt. I said, we'll race each other, you hit me, I'm going to crash it. And I've never had any problem with Irvin, I haven't had any problem with Earnhardt, and if they ever touch me, I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to wipe them out. 
Incredible guy, Ernie Irvin. Thanks for coming out on the show, man. We're so glad to have you here. Yeah, I mean, I've been looking forward to uh, uh, coming on the show. What you been up to, buddy? Uh, just um, Jared racing a little bit, and just you know, you doing work around the farm all the time, and trying to work out some. So, where do you live now? I live in Ocala, Florida. Okay. Did y'all have a an equestrian? club in near charleston south carolina at one point did i read that incorrectly yeah we uh we built a farm um down in um like south of charleston yeah um did all that and decided we didn't like it after that so it wasn't real smart but we did and, <laughs> and sold it and and then we uh, moved back to concord um we lived there for another two or three years and then my wife told me that she was moving to um ocala florida and if I, I hope uh, you want to join me. So uh, I, I joined her right here. What's in Ocala? What, what took you there? Um, there's horses, and my wife loves the, the property area, and um, it, it's, it's really beautiful. And so um, that's what uh, took us here. What was it about Concord that was, uh, I got to get back to Ocala? I mean, Concord may have a horse or two, right? Oh, yeah, they do. And I mean, we had a horse farm up there, and, um, she just um, wanted wanted a, a change, and I did too. And yeah. um, it was um, interesting. Ocala, every time we come here to visit, like with the horse show and stuff, we really enjoyed it because it's so beautiful. Where were you born and raised? I was born in Salinas, California. Actually, I was born in Carmel. Yeah. Um, but I actually was raised in Salinas. What, how did you get all the way over to North Carolina? My mom and my dad kind of separated and and – then we finally found out where dad was at and he said dad said that um he said man if you ever want to do anything in racing you've got to be here in um, north carolina and so, so i kind of followed what he said was there really a time where you didn't know where your daddy went oh uh, yeah there was probably two years three years yeah how old when, were you how old were you i mean um i think i was um 18 were you mad when you finally found out where he was at? Would you go, hey, Dad, what's up? Why are you hiding from him? <laughs> no, I mean, I really wasn't mad. It was um, it was just one of the things that, you know, Dad felt like he needed to leave California because of, you know, all the situation. And, you know, Mom felt like she wanted to stay there. And it ended up that um, then when we finally found out where Dad was at, then uh, he was like, I mean, I followed what he was saying. Um, if you ever want to do anything further in racing, you need to be on the East Coast. Was he a racer to begin with? Yeah, Dad um, raced on dirt tracks most of the time, and um, I grew up basically around the, the dirt tracks and watching him. Okay, so he, he must have, you know, with the situation at home being what it was, he left, needed a new beginning, but he also was continuing to pursue the racing. Is that correct? Yeah, dad, dad was actually working with Lake Speed, and we all know Lake. Um, and so 
he he kept trying to not race himself and he started promoting some race race tracks right here um well actually uh up in north carolina at concord um and it used to be the concord speedway yeah um not the new concord speedway so he um started promoting there and then it kind of closed down and um so he was kind of like um lost and you know, didn't didn't have a whole lot of racing except for some uh, cup stuff with Lake Speed. Was he the last promoter for the old Concord? I think so. Wow. Um, I'm I'm not 100 percent positive because I went here then. Yeah, that's pretty cool because that place I never went to that track. I don't believe I might have maybe went when I was too young to remember, but uh, because there's two Concord Speedways, there's right. an old uh, oval that would become a development, a housing development, and then they built the next one out on 601. And it just recently closed yeah. a couple years ago. But so you started racing though out in California. And when did you run your first race? How old were you? Uh, I was uh, sixteen. Dang, you started kind of late. I mean, kids these days are racing at three, four, five years old. Well, it's crazy. I, w- I started. I started in go karts. Yeah. And, you know, basically, I started when I was eight years old, and um, you know, ran ran a lot of go kart stuff, okay. and you know, actually um, won the the state title sometime in. Um, I think in the, the late eighties, um, and just, um, really enjoyed it. Went to the nationals a couple times. Um, I, I look at the nationals, um, the people that were there and the people that were there is Lake speed, um, and, um, the Pruitts, you know, they were mm. both there. And so it, it was interesting people that, that I know here now, um, uh, in the, this time of world. Yeah, the recognizable names. Lake Speed, we we talk about him a little bit as being one of the. Uh, I mean, he was a world. He was like a world champ. He beat sent. He who did he beat? Senna. He went to what? Over, yeah, yeah. He went overseas and or beat Senna in the world championships. That right, Matthew? I don't know. Oh, <laughs> you stumped me. Yeah, I think so. He's a world karting champion. Lake yeah, Speed. I knew that, but yeah, um, beating Senna. So you move. So all right, what when you when you move to North Carolina? What are you giving up? What are you leaving in California? I really left um, my mom because she didn't move at that moment, um, and basically it was nothing else. No racing, no cars. No, I mean my racing deal. um, I actually drove for Jack McCoy, um, and with the Winston West. Yeah, we we did about. Uh, six or seven races and um then we were uh, pretty much jack jack decided he didn't want to spend any more money i read a book about jack mccoy how did that go so i know who jack is uh how did how did your races with him go well i mean i mean we never really won with jack and um i mean i think we struggled a little bit because we didn't know a whole lot um but that's when i met um before that i met ivan baldwin and he was working for Jack, and then another name that we all know is uh, Gary Nelson. Yep. Um, that was um, the first people that built my stock car was Gary Nelson and Ivan Baldwin. So, I mean, I, I had a, a really good um, people to follow and be able to help me. So you move over to North Carolina, and what what did you when you got to Carolina? What was there for you? What what was did you have a job lined up? What was the deal? <laughs> no, I didn't have no job lined up. It was just. Uh, <laughs> Just basically, just dad said you need to be in North Carolina, and so I, I, I basically chased my dream about racing. It really wasn't about the Cup Series because I didn't know much about that, and yeah. it was kind of like way beyond, way beyond. I was probably gonna 
reach and so i never really paid attention to it much but we love dirt racing and we, we did that uh, me and mark reno um and mm. you know mark Re mark reno you know him and yes. um, i mean we i mean mark was a great guy he's the one that really started me off in in the carolinas did you what did you had to you had to get a job so what was your, like your first responsibility in north carolina yeah working at charlotte motor speedway welding seats no kidding welding in yeah. grand welding in grandstand seats well yeah they were they were all portable basically they, okay. but you you could take them unbolt them and move them um and i worked with uh, uh i think it was jimmy g which you, yeah, you know my too. Uncle Jimmy G. Um, yeah, yeah, we worked with him. He was he was right there, and then uh, Robbie was there, um, and so so I kind of got to meet them guys, and um, it was it was interesting. But they paid by the seat, and so basically, <laughs> yeah. So I would try to get there early before they got there because they weren't getting up real early, and there, there was times that I would get there like at six in the morning. So I could really put out some seats right before they got there. <laughs> um, so it, it was easier for me at that time, and um, it wasn't easy to get up at six. But um, it was it was easy to try to make a little money. Did you know this about your uncle? Like Jimmy G's out welding seats at the speedway with Ernie Irvin. I, I did. <laughs> like, who yes. knew that? I mean, is that, how random is that? Yeah. Didn't see that one. That one coming. Everybody knew everybody back then, but. Um, so you welded seats for a while. I heard that you were a really, really great fabricator, and 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 something in my mind wants to think that you worked as a fabricator in you know for certain teams building cars, helping people build cars. How did you meet Mark Reno? And let's let's help people understand who Mark is. Well, so how did you meet Mark Reno, and what can you explain Mark to the to the listeners? Well, when I was on the West Coast um, with Ivan Baldwin, uh, we built some of. Uh, the stuff that Mark Reno would, uh, and actually trick racing fuel. That's a, that was real big on the West coast. And so I, um, helped build some of uh, Mark's cars. I'm not the real big fabricator. Mark yeah. is the fabricator. Yeah. Um, so, so, I mean, he, he started, um, and then he actually, um, he had the trick trick program and Ron Esau drove for him a bunch and, um, some other people, Joe Rutman drove for him some, and then, uh, then when I moved to the East Coast, Mark had already moved to the East Coast and was actually working for Mark Martin. So, uh, and, and when Mark Martin closed his program down at the moment, and then Mark was there, and so I knew him already. And so we kind of just got together, and I went down there, and we had odd jobs. One of the odd jobs was we were building some stuff for your dad, um, Dale Sr., and so, you know, some of the hunting stuff, because he was real big on hunting. And yeah. So we, we built some of the stands. It was more Mark doing it. Um, he knew how to do it. He told me, weld this together, weld that together. And so I did. How many times did you, how many times in your life do you think you flash burned your face or your eyes welding? Well, yeah, especially because most of the time you didn't weld a helmet, wear a helmet. Ooh. So you just, um, well, you, just close, you just close your eyes. You know? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't seem it, right. That does not work because I try. I've been. I've done the same thing. I, I want to add one thing. You know, Mark Reno is somebody that's fascinating, and he comes up a good bit on this show because his life has intersected with a lot of people. And and he, by the way, he watches this show a good bit because we have people on here that he's 
worked with. Yeah. This will be another yeah. uh, case. But Reno was also the crew chief. The first year I was in racing, he was the crew chief because uh, I was working on Finch's team. Now, he got with Finch yeah. years, years, years earlier than that. But, uh, but the, the influence he's had in this sport – He's such a humble guy. You will never hear him talk about himself. He's one of those guys that just, you know, you hardly get him to talk. But when you get him wound up, he'll go. So, Mark Reno, influential. This is the person that you first connected with, basically, that got you involved in racing. Well, I mean, involved in racing on the East Coast. On the East Coast. I mean, I, I actually was racing with with um, Dad, my father, um, and and we were doing some, but not a whole lot. And actually, you know, one of the people you all know is um, Tom Pistone. Um, we, me and Mark both worked over at Tom Pistone building some of the cars. And, <laughs> and so we, so I mean, I, all these things are intercircled and it's amazing. Um, it was inter- interesting time. Yep. So you got to racing late models at Concord Speedway, the new Concord Speedway. Okay. The Big Ten Series. Tell me how you, how, how do you get back in the driver's seat? What, op- what, what opportunity created your chance to go back to driving and racing? Well, um, you know, obviously I did some with my dad. And then right. then Mark, Mark said, you know, said, we're going to build a, uh, a pavement car, but we're going to run it on the dirt. And so we did. Um, I was, you know, definitely a part of it, trying to help him. But he was the brains and money behind it. And so we built this car and we decided to, to go run. And um, we actually were pretty dominant a lot of times at Concord in the dirt, but only when it dry slick, um, when it, when it was wet. Car. Yeah. When it was wet, I was, I was done. So that car, uh, was a white car, black nose, number five, right? Yep. You know, I know that I was at, uh, I was at North Wilkesboro Speedway and, uh, you were running one of your first few, cup races i think you might have been racing for dk or somebody but you had only raced um literally just a handful of cup races and just starting to get your feet wet and you gave me a tenth scale rc car that you ran over somewhere at some rc track in town with that body it has a dirt wedge body on it painted up just like that late model car that you raced and it was a four wheel drive electric RC car. You gave me the car yep. and the radio right there in the driver's owner, sort of where the, everybody parked their buses. Okay. Not buses, but everybody yep. parked their vans, you know, everybody that. And uh, right. we kind of hardly, we kind of barely knew each other. But for some yep. reason, you gave me that car. And I thought that, I was like, I was with Brad Means, Jimmy Means' son. And I said, yeah, I got it. Yeah, I said, I got to meet Ernie Irvin. He's giving me some RC car. And Brad was like, what? And I was like, just listen, just wait. We're supposed to meet him right here. And he came by the driver's lounge and ran over to your car, grabbed it, handed it to me. And Brad Means was standing there with his jaw on the ground. And I was like, check this damn RC car out he's giving me. This thing's amazing. Do you remember this, Ernie? Uh, Vaguely. um, I mean, one of the things that I was always um, um, mad about that I I don't remember – some meeting Dell Jr. So um, I knew that he was around because a lot of the things I see, you know, is is part of what Dell Jr. was doing. So um, I just thought I was interested, um, you know, and then uh, um, somebody come up and wanted, you know, my autograph or or something that I had that I really didn't need anymore. I was not running my RC car. Um, so 
So I said, hey, you know, Dale Jr., I'll, I'll give him that, that car. And, yeah, that's um, amazing. You know, that's awesome. Let him mess with it. Well, we did, dude. I played with that car, used it a lot, and had a good time with it. And I, I obviously never forgot that. But you run your first cup race in yep. 1987 at Richmond with yep. Mark Reno. You and him built the car. Right. I See, I thought that your first cup race was at Charlotte in the 600 in that silver 56. Uh, Dale Hart Chevrolet-sponsored car, and you ran 12th, I believe, in that race. God, 600 miles was a long, long, long way that day. But you ran your first race at Richmond in 87 with Mark. So how do you remember, like, man, are you – you know, you said it just a minute ago, you're not – you're not looking at Cup as an opportunity. You're not looking toward Cup because it seemed like such an unattainable goal. But here you are racing, going to run your first Cup race. Were you guys <laughs> – what was your emotions? Were you freaking out? Were you thrilled? Were you scared to death? Well, at, at that time, I was pretty cocky, which um, <laughs> I really didn't, didn't have any reason to be. But um, I just felt like it's like, okay, well, you know, Mark had the car. I helped build it, you know, basically it was an old, old car that somebody had ran, um, out on the, I think on the West coast. And so Mark ended up getting it. I think it was, had been burnt. Um, so we kind of rebuilt it, um, brought it back to life. And, um, that was, I think that was the first race car that we had. And, um, and Mark decided, he says, he said, you know, you know, we have the dirt car and then we went to the pavement car. Um, let's, let's do a car. And, and I was kind of all for it. I mean, obviously, cause Mark was going to own it and drive and have me drive it. And so it was, um, it was definitely, um, an exciting time and went to Richmond and made the race and ended up blowing up. Um, and so we, we didn't really finish very well, but our, our next race was at Charlotte motor speedway. And that was the, um, October race. Yeah. So it, it was only a 500 mile. Okay. So that's, that's why I can last that long. Um, <laughs> now, how was does... it the same car? Yeah, I think so. God. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same car. Yeah. yeah. Cause, and, and you know, what was funny. I mean, you kind of know a little bit more about chassis stuff now. Um, uh, it was a, we had a Watts link on it and a lot of people don't know what yeah. Watts link is, but, um, we had a Watts link on it and nobody ran that. No. Um, I mean, there's no cup cars with that. And, so, but Mark was, Mark was very inventive. And so he decided, he said, yeah, this will, we'll, we'll run this car. And we went to Charlotte and ended up, um, making the race. And, um, that was one of the things we were worried about. Um, we were all, Mark was really worried about paying for tires, but he said, you know, we're, we're doing it. We're, we're going, I don't know how we're going to pay for tires, but we're going to do it. And so we did that. And a lot of the teams when they ran out of tires, not, not ran out, but when they, they broke, we could um, get some of their tires or some tires that they took off and we would put them on. And we ended up finishing um, eighth that day. Oh, so, yeah, it was top um, ten. Yeah. How does it end up a Dale Earnhardt paint scheme or a, a sponsorship? Well, you talk about the relationship. Uh, Dad knew Ernie and obviously was great friends with Mark Reno and Ernie's, Ernie mm. you know, met Dad through building some of the hunting stands and so forth so imagine when mark went you know when mark, when dad learned of ernie driving in this race with mark's car i assume that 
I'm just you can fill me in here, Ernie, but I'm assuming Dad just reached out and said, "Hey, I want to put I'll put the Chevrolet store on there. How much you need? You need a little tire money? Is it something like that?" It it was something like that, but the only the only reason that it all happened was because of Mark Reno and your relate with Senior, and ended up that um Senior and uh, Kenny Schrader were driving to um, I think Darlington. And that, that race was going on. And so Schrader said, hey, um, he, he come in and seen the car. He said, well, what are you guys going to do with this? He said, well, Ernie's going to drive it at Richmond. And then also we're going to try to go to Charlotte. And so we ended up um, with the Dale Earnhardt Chevrolet um, on the side because um, Kenny Schrader kind of, kind of, um, I don't know if he kind of tricked your dad doing it or what, <laughs> but you, you know, Schrader really well. Sure. So, um, yeah, he's, he's one of them that, you know, he can, he can BS the best. And, um, so, um, he's the one that kind of got the whole thing going. And, and it was also because, you know, Dell senior, obviously your dad knew Mark, uh, Reno. And so they, they were doing it a lot because of, Mark and I think your dad had heard about me on the um, in Concord, and I didn't have a real good reputation, but I had a good reputation as winning. Yeah, you talked about it. So you you were cocky. Um, you had a reputation <laughs> for being aggressive, uh, but you won a lot, uh, and you carried that reputation and attitude on into the Cup Series. You went and raced for DK Ulrich, uh, yep. and you drove this white number two car with Kroger sponsorship. And yeah. you, this is to me obviously finishing eighth in that in the Dale Earnhardt Chevrolet Monte Carlo at Charlotte was amazing. Yeah. Uh, but with the moment that I think I remember seeing you flash the brilliance and 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 um, potential in your Cup career was at Bristol in DK's car. Yeah. You guys had done something uh, with your pit strategy and some tires. And that got yourself up toward the front, and you literally, uh, in a car, DK's cars didn't run at the front. You know, DK's cars typically ran in the very back end. When you started driving them, they got better. They got they ran better. They ran faster. They ran you ran you know, ten fifteen spots better. But then at Bristol that day, uh, you're leading the race in this car that doesn't lead. This car does not lead races, and you were out front. You ended up getting out, getting in the fence off of four, but. That to me was the moment when I thought, "Oh man, he's gonna get snatched up. Mm. Some team's gonna get him, and he's gonna be." Because you know, I'm a Dale Earnhardt fan at this time, a little kid, Dale Earnhardt fan. And I don't like people. I don't like people coming in, and I don't like Dad. I don't like the the competition getting tougher. Mm-hmm. I want Dad to win every race. I want him to lap the field every week. And I'm like, oh man, this guy's gonna be Ernie's gonna be up there, gonna be beating beating Dad for races. We're gonna have to we're gonna have to team with this one. Yes. <laughs> and do you remember that race? Because I will never forget it. Uh, see, I will also. So I was Ernie. I was a big Jimmy Means fan, and you might you might yep. remember you might remember that. Oh uh, yeah. So yeah. when I saw those cars run well, it was like you were almost like an underdog. You know, and DK was certainly an underdog, and there you are out front leading this race, running really well at Bristol. Was that? Did you know what you were doing in that moment? Um, like leading? Yeah. <laughs> yeah did you so, know? Did you? So, was yeah. it like? Could you believe it, or were you like, "This is what I do. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm right where I'm supposed to yeah. be." <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, 
I really realized that that's where I was supposed to be. And I mean, I, it, obviously leading my first cup race, um, driving for DK, um, knew, knew probably a lot of the potential of the car. Bob Johnson was the crew chief. Um, he's an old name and, yep, um, very good. we did some, some trickery, um, you know, basically trying to get in the, in the front. Um, cause Bob, Bob, he was, uh, he was, um, pretty cocky too. And he knew, he said, man, if we get up front, we can lead this race. And, and obviously DK was trying to, um, advance his team trying to, to, to do as much as he could. And, um, I mean, all those things put together and we led the race and, we were actually on Hoosier tires. And so Hoosier tires are a lot of times were faster um, some of the time. Yeah. And so, so it was interesting. We ended up, you know, leading that race and never really realized how, how critical that race would have been. Um, I mean, obviously if I'd have crashed like early, you know, that would have probably been the end of my, a uh, little bit of a career. So um, I just felt, uh, and it was pretty awesome to, to lead the race and, um, I mean, I, I just was, was really excited, but I was kind of like, oh, it ain't no big deal. We're going to do that some more. Yeah. So that, to me, was the moment when I think that the rest of the world realized who you were and uh, what you could be. And, and not long, you were driving for Morgan McClure. So you go and drive for, uh, for Morgan McClure, and it's a winning car, and you won with it. So talk about – that to me – I, that to me seemed like such a great fit. Those guys were uh, were cocky. Uh, mm-hmm. is, am I am I right? I, I, my perception yeah. of them was they were hey, they were like, hey man, we're as good as anybody. We can do this. You seem like the perfect driver for them. Well, Tony Glover and me got along really well, and um, they they had just hired Phil Parsons, um, and then they ran like two or three races and really never meshed very good. <laughs> We have a few times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have a few. We have 11 or 12 or something. Awesome. Um, <laughs> 11 or 12. <laughs> Holy moly. Just a few. May, maybe more, I remember. Um, and and then Tony Glover said, he said, hey, called me and said, okay, let's, um, let's go test you down at Atlanta and see what you can do. I know you can do good. We just need to go down there, run uh, a good test, and be able to, you know, maybe – put you in this car a lot. And so we went down there. It had been raining. Um, and so, I mean, I said, okay, so we were sitting there and waiting for it to dry up, dry up. And it finally dried up some, but the old Atlanta speed, um, speedway would, it would leak water all the time. As yeah. far as in the corners, it would drain down. Yeah. Weepers. Yeah. And so, so it's like Glover is like, man, I got to get you in this car. I got to get you, you know, seeing about getting going. And um, he said, Tony said, I'm telling you, just go out there, do a good job. Don't hit nothing. You're, you're going to be this driver. I said, okay, well, here comes the cockiness out of me. So I, just, I decided, so I went out there and warmed up some and then stood on the gas. And basically Glover, Glover tells me, he said, I ran like a half second faster than the pole was the the race before. I don't know that for sure, but that's what he told me. Um, and that made me more cocky. Um, and it, it was um, the, the way that maybe I was going through the water and 
you know, didn't really care about it because uh, I knew it was going to stick, I hoped. Um, and so so that's when um, uh, Morgan McClure, you know, Larry um, called me and said, hey, let's um, let's do this deal. Um, try to try to run you uh, um, as many races as we can. So they don't they didn't run the full ski season back then. Oh no, they ran the full season, yeah. but I um, mean, you know, obviously, um, you know, Larry, Larry, they were always in between a little bit of um, sponsorship stuff, but they had the Kodak program, yeah. Um, and so, so Larry said, you know, I think it was more trying to make sure that it's like, okay, well, you get out there and do it, and as long as we can do keep doing good. We're going to keep you in the car. Gotcha. I got to ask you, Arnie. I mean, because you keep bringing up the fact that you were cocky, and I know that that was sort of like the reputation. Um, but explain to me a little bit more about this cockiness. I mean, is it is it the confident kind of cocky, or did it literally come off as you know sort of a, a jerk to other people who don't know you? Or did you care about relationships? Was it with your team? Was it with other drivers? Like who who, who was calling you cocky? Uh, beyond yourself um i mean i mean i'm not real sure who was calling me cocky um but i mean i just i just knew what i could do um with the right with the right stuff and the right car um i i knew i had i mean i could drive a race car as good as anybody i felt um it didn't really matter but if i had the right stuff under me i knew i could win races um it was it, it was a long um, drawn out goal to try to do it but you know i mean i i felt like that's kind of what helped set me apart from a lot of people and um when i got in the morgan mcclure car it was like this is easy i mean it's a lot easier than you know dk's car because it was you know dk had didn't have a whole lot of um funding and um he didn't have the cars as uh, good as um the morgan mcclure team yeah, you became a force right away with the the, the orange number four, Morgan McClure Kodak car, and it was a good looking race car. So you go out there and you're you're you start to have success and you're winning races with those guys and your confidence it's feeding that confidence yeah. feeding that cockiness. Is it? It's my perception that the relationship in the between you and the team kind of soured a little bit right before you ended up going to drive. Uh, for Yates, is that true? Did you guys end on good terms? Well, I mean, we kind of ended on good terms. I mean, me and Tony were still friends, and me and Larry still talked. There was no problem there. Um, I, I mean, it was a lot because I wanted to um, do things and and make the team better. And Larry said, he said, we'll do anything we got to do to make the team better. And it just never really happened. And um, the unfortunate situation with Davey dying um, with a helicopter wreck. Um, and then um, they call me, and it was actually um, Lee Morris called me. Um, and me and my wife were, um, Kim, we were, uh, we were in bed that night and um, up at Pocono. And they called me and they said, hey, we were thinking about you driving the the Texaco car 28 with Robert Yates. Um, I, and would you be interested? And I knew that I had a contract. So I told him, I said, well, I'm under contract with um, Morgan McClure and Kodak. And so, I mean, I, I just don't know how I can get out of that. Um, and then they, they said, well, if we can get you out of that, would you be interested in driving a car? 
And I said, most definitely, I would love to drive that car. Yeah. So they just negotiated a buyout? Evidently, they never really told me a whole lot. Um, it just, uh, I mean, I think they may have. Uh, I'm not real sure. But um, next thing I know, um, they told me that I could um, uh, relieve myself of the contract. So I, I did that and started driving the 28 car. Before all that happened, I think, um, what year was that? What year did you drive that car for the first uh, time? 93, So 93. I think. In 1991, you had kind of got the name of Swerve and Irvin. Was that a name that you liked, didn't like? Did that? Did you mind a nickname like that, or did it bother you? Well, I mean, I'm not so sure that it bothered me because now, again, the cockiness come out. Yeah. So I really didn't care. At least they were talking about me. Um, and I think Sterling Marlin's the one that kind of <laughs> come up, kind of come up with the name. I think you're right. <laughs> yeah. Did so, you like? Did you get along with Sterling back then? Yeah, we got along all right. Were there and, any drivers? Um, were there any drivers that you didn't like or, or just kind of had a hard time being around? Like I, I, I had a few. Uh, I think everybody's had a few. I, I really never had. I mean, um, I don't know if they liked being around me, but um, I never really had no problems with. I didn't think anybody. Um, maybe I may have roughed a few up, not yeah. not on purpose. Um, may they may not have liked me at the moment, um, but I mean, you were so involved in in racing after me. You knew that it's like. I mean, everybody kind of like forgets it after a little bit and, you know, they still remember it. They put it in their memory bank um, and just go on. Hey, Download Listeners, Supervising Producer Andrew Curlin here. Are supply chain issues still disrupting operations? Well, let me tell you, Graybar has you covered. They are the leader in distribution of electrical, communications, data networking, and industrial products. Professionals across the country rely on Graybar's nationwide logistics network to get them what they need, when and where they need it, and within budget. That's right, and they're operating with one clear mission, to serve as the vital link in the supply chain, adding value for customers and suppliers with innovative solutions and services. Let me tell you, here's what makes them different, is you know being able to effectively navigate supply chains to get products on site and on time is so crucial these days, and Graybar's nationwide logistics network is a game changer in keeping projects on task. So when you need a hand powering, connecting, or maintaining your operations, join thousands of professionals who rely on Graybar to help keep them up and running. Check out Graybar. Visit graybar.com to start an order today. At Talladega, you had to apologize uh, to the competitors uh, for some recent events during the driver's meeting. Um... Is that something that you wanted to do yourself? Was that what? How did that? I remember that happening, and and uh, I felt like you know watching the watching your comments. It was a very genuine, you know, a very genuine. It was emotional. Yeah, emotional sort of uh, reaction that you had. Is that something that you did, took upon yourself to do, to sort of let the guys know, hey man, I you know, I'm out, I'm not out here to create a lot of problems. Well, a lot of the reason that I did it was Richard Petty and your dad um, both talked to me and they said, hey, you know, you're not going to you're not going to be able to continue this um, path. Um, You need you need to figure out, you know, where you're at 
and what you're trying to accomplish and realize that, you know, you have to race against these guys, you know, probably for the rest of your career. So you need to, you need to like straighten up, you know? And so that, that brought a lot of thoughts to my, my mind. And, um, and so I finally, I just did it all on my own. I, I said, I went up to Dick Beatty. You remember him? Oh, yeah. Um, and he was the, the main guy. And I asked Dick, I said, hey, would you mind if I said a few words at the driver's meeting? And, and Dick said, you know, I mean, <laughs> uh, I mean, none of the really competitors ever stop up and or step up and talk at the driver's meeting. Um, and so he said, well, you know, I'll do some checking and figure it out. And this was still at Talladega and um, driver's meeting was going on well, getting ready to go on. And Dick come up to me and he said, uh, yeah, is it, it'll be fine to, you know, say a few words. And so um, then just a little while later at, in the driver's meeting, um, Dick, uh, well, actually, um, I think it was, uh, I can't remember. I think it was um, Mike Helton or somebody had said, uh, Ernie, Ernie wants to um, say a few words. And so I walked up, um, you know, again, the cockiness was coming out of me. Um, and I walked up and said, you know, I, I, I've had some problems. I've uh, roughed a few people up. I've had been involved in some wrecks that I, you know, didn't really need to be involved in. And, um, but I, I want to apologize. And I also, you know, want to get your guys um, to have, I want to have some trust around me and I'm going to try to change. Um, and I'm not exactly sure how it all worded, but, um, but, uh, I, I remember seeing Rusty Wallace's face <laughs> and, and it, it was one of them. that's like, yeah, right. Uh, sure. Let's oh, just, man. let's just, let's just see how this happens. Um, and <laughs> you know, so we, we went, we were at Talladega and I started the race and, you know, we finished all right. We didn't have no problems. Um, didn't, didn't have any wrecks or cause any wrecks. Um, and so that was the lead to trying to do what your dad had said. And, um, and then Richard Petty, Yeah, that it's like trying to earn the trust of everybody in the garage area. And, um, from that moment on, I don't know if I really changed my driving style, but I really didn't get involved in a whole lot of wrecks after that. Um, but I, still, I was still involved in wrecks cause that's just natural. Um, and so it ended up that, you know, it seemed like I started earning their respect. And, you know, obviously when I started driving the 28 car with Robert Yates, um, I think I, you know, that, that, um, escalated the, the, um, confidence in people knowing how I could drive. I, I'm curious about something. I mean, I'm assuming Ernie that you agreed with Richard Petty and Dale Earnhardt with what they were telling you. Right. But surely, oh, the, surely the irony wasn't lost, at least in your mind that, you know, one of the notorious aggressive drivers of all time is telling you that you need to come down to be, uh, you know, to make it in the sport. And I, I just, I, I remember this so vividly of you standing up and thinking, well, I mean, I know he's aggressive, but he's not so aggressive that he's got to stand up and apologize and tell and, and, and get the, the confidence of the entire series um, and, and I was blown away by that. So my, I guess my question is, is that, did the, did the irony ever occur to anybody that, you know, that 
that that it's Dale Earnhardt delivering this message, and therefore it must mean I am super aggressive. So much so that if he's telling me this, then it must be bad. And 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 uh, and did you agree with that? Well, I mean, I agreed with that because of Dale Senior and Richard Petty both telling me this. And when when those guys speak. Uh, I mean, you have to listen yeah. um, just because of their reputation and, you know, their their um, their status in the sport. Um, I mean, I, I felt like, you know, this is this is something I need to do. And so that's the reason that I said, you know, I need to stand up and, you know, tell people that I'm sorry um, and gonna try to do better. And I'll tell you, too, that Richard Petty had the same conversation that uh, you had with them with dad right that's you know? true he said that yeah so yeah. you know 1980 dad dives three wide on the re- the very first start of the race at martinsville 1980 <laughs> those big old cars with no brakes martinsville dad goes three wide underneath richard into turn one the very very beginning of the race of so a 500 miler at martinsville and causes about a 15 car crash in the middle of one and two and richard got dad by richard poked dad in the chest after that race and said hey you got to figure this out had the same conversation so i think dad probably was seeing a little bit of himself yeah. possibly i don't remember him getting up in the driver's meeting though <laughs> hell he just straightened it out yeah but i think honestly you know that you said you said that you didn't think you changed your style much and and but you but you did clean it up you did you did avoid being the sort of uh, focus of a lot of the crashes that were happening around that time. And that was, I think, you know, your style was so unique. It could be compared to Dad. It could be compared to a few other people, Gary Ballou maybe. Uh, but it was, you know, there weren't a, there weren't a lot of guys like y'all. Uh, you, you to me, fit in that mold of of Gary Blue, Dale Earnhardt. That's kind of you know do whatever it takes. Gonna you know you go out there win the race no matter what. You got you got to lean on a guy or whatever you have to do. The cockiness and all that, um, the belief in yourself. I think you carried that with you. You might have cleaned up you know a little bit of the recklessness maybe. But um, so you go and you get into uh, the twenty eight car. All right now. You know, you had a. I felt like you were in a perfect situation with the four car, great combination of a team and driver who had a sort of similar, similar mindset. But now you're in possibly the fastest car in the series. All right. Always loved Davy and thought he was an amazing race car driver. But I thought, I think that you were possibly a better race car driver once you could kind of clean up the, the, the rawness. In the rough edges, you had that aggression and speed, and all, you were like the total package, speed on the road courses, wherever you went. To me, when you and that 28 car became a combination, it was as formidable as, as Tim Richmond in his, in his sort of peak in that 25 car. Like, you were going to go out there and dominate. This car had... You never, you always, if you had the best drivers, but rarely did you have them in the best cars with the best motors, right? And the best setup, the best crew chief. You had the perfect package. Is, is, I mean, are you pinching yourself to have this opportunity to drive this car? Most definitely. Um, I mean, I had a lot of respect for Davey. 
um, knew how talented he was. And uh, hearing from you that you thought that um, I was more talented than Davey, but that's kind of kind of crazy because, I mean, Davey was very good. Um, and then being able to, you know, drive for Robert Yates and um, the respect that Robert Yates had in the garage area. Um, and one, one of the things I remember, um, I told your dad that when I, that was before I, he learned how cocky I was, um, I told him, I said, you know, um, he gave us our first opportunity, Mark Reno and me, to be able to do what we did. And um, just being, I told him, I said, you know, one of these days, I'm going to be your, your worst enemy because I'm going to outrun you and I'm going to beat you and I'm going to win the championship. And, and he kind of did the Dale Earnhardt laugh and um, was walking off, said, okay, let's see how this works. <laughs> um, so, um, but then I ended up driving the 28 car and um, it was just, I mean, Tony Glover originally told me when I was driving a four car, he said, trust me, this is going to be a lot easier than drive a DK's car. Um, and I did. And I was, you know, one, one race at Daytona 500 and, you know, some road courses. And, um, so I was very fortunate. And then I drove the 28 car, which is combination of probably one of the best crew chiefs, one of the best, the, by far the best motor builders, um, with Robert and Doug, um, and just trying to have the best combination. They had the best cars, Ford Motor Company was behind the whole program. Um, and it was even easier to, to drive the 28 car. Um, you know, when you ever have a, a car that handles and a lot, a lot of horsepower, uh, it's going to, you know, go to the front. And um, when when I started driving that car, I mean, I don't remember the, the first, uh, I don't recall the first five or six races we ran. I kind of, I, I remember them. But, um, I mean, I'm just like, you know, this is what you're supposed to do. And so I went out there and did it. One of the, one of the things I remember so much is uh, coming up um, at Darlington. And that was my first race. And the reason Ford Motor Company wanted me to drive this car was because of my cockiness and because of my um, aggression um, to be able to, you know, more carry on what Davey had done. Davey was was kind of aggressive, but he was um, maybe not quite as cocky as me, but he was he was very um, um, humble and he did a lot of good stuff. And so I, I you know, was right behind um, Dale Sr. Um, going down the straightaway and I come on the radio um, and I told Larry, I said, hey, watch this. And so I um, hit, got into the back of Dale Sr and lifted the tires up off the ground a little bit and it went back down and he, he continued on. He was waving and, you know, just on his back, back uh, on his mirror or whatever in the back glass and, you know, uh, telling me like, let's go. This is going to be fun. Um, <laughs> so that was what the reason that Ford Motor Company, that was the reason Ford Motor Company and Robert Yates, um, chose me to drive that car yeah in my mind you were the answer to dale earnhardt to chevrolet mm. and dale earnhardt and the black three the black 28 was now going to be an intimidating force on the nascar circuit with ernie Irvin behind the wheel because he was a guy you just when he was in the mirror you didn't know what was coming but you knew 
he was going to be tough and rough. That's interesting. Yeah, that, to, yeah, yeah you're 100. That's right. how I saw it. Yeah, as a you know as that's a kid back then watching it, and I was in a real fear that Ernie was going to, you know, start taking taking wins and taking championships and opportunities away from Dad. That was he was they were going to be hard to beat, um, and y'all were. You know, you guys you guys made a great team. How was the uh, how was the relationship going? I mean, we're going to get to Michigan in the crash, uh, but up to that point, how was the relationship going with Robert, the team? How are you fitting in? Um, where where are you mentally as a driver at that point? Um, mentally as a driver, I felt like I was on top of my game. Um, felt like that I was deserving to drive that race car. Um, I wasn't. I wasn't deserving to replace Davey Allison. I was going to continue the um, the era of Robert Yates racing and um, Texaco. So um, I felt like I was confident. Felt like I knew I had the right team. Um, everything matched. I mean, the pit stops were awesome. We did everything. It, that car was had done could do everything right, and um, um, our relationship was was very good. And um, Larry and me got along very well and um, we're, we're able to, you know, talk and be able to, you know, make the car better every practice. Yeah. Larry was kind of becoming, or maybe at that time it already became one of the, one of the more appreciated crew chiefs in, in the um, garage and haven't, what was working with Larry like? We know what he's like today. He is a broadcaster and, and, a, and, a, and a great mind on strategy and so forth for their listeners as, as at Fox. But what, what was he like as a crew chief, and how was, how was he aggressive? What was, what was his strategy? Uh, Larry was um, very technical. Um, not the, not the kind of technical they have these days. Um, but Larry, he was he – was, uh, his his philosophy was is uh, you watch the Braves play baseball, you eat eat um, pizza at night, <laughs> and and then basically you know you drive the race car and he thinks about the race car all the time, and he knows and he's up late and up early and had had everything on his mind to try to make the car better. Yeah. So everything's going really well. You're past the midway point of the 1994 season. You're 20 some points behind Dad in in the in the championship. Looking at a looking like a real contender to win the championship that year. Had been leading the points at times, and you have a practice crash at Michigan. There's no. I've always wanted to talk to you about this. I've had a lot of questions about uh, this accident. There's no video of it, not a lot of imagery or anything for anybody to really understand exactly what happened to you that day. Can you explain, um, how the crash occurred? Um, I basically blew a right front tire. Um, I, w- I was actually going to, I was practicing. Larry said, let's make a 10 lap run and see what we got. And so we were making a 10 lap run on, on the 10th lap. Um, Larry said, you know, the thing's not exactly right. Let's just come in here and, and work on it. And I said, well, I'm just going to make one more lap and just see what I got. And, I mean, obviously it wasn't going to change anything because that's the way the car was handling. Um, and it just so happened that I drove into turn one and blew the right front out and hit the fence and 
Uh, I don't remember a whole lot after that, except for 21 days later, I kind of woke up. So mm. when you hit the wall, was it hit with the right front? I'm I'm 90% sure, yeah, it was hit with the right front. Um, and I mean, the car, the car was definitely hurt real bad, but not like um, Michael Walter crashing at Bristol. Right. Um, it, it was hurt bad, but um, it was more hurt because of the things that um, – that NASCAR have changed now to make the cars better and, you know, head and neck restraints and all this stuff um, that had advanced after my crash. Well, actually Bobby Allison's crash, my crash, and it just kept um, proceeding to get better as far as um, the safety in um, NASCAR. What was the injuries that you had from that, Rick? I'd have to get, get my wife to tell you all those, but um, basically I had a basal skull fracture um, and I had a collapse, I think a collapsed lung. Um, and um, I mean, I was kind of like drowning in my own blood because um, the basal skull fracture and things. And um, so, so they actually um, at the racetrack had to um, put a trachonometry, whatever that's called, yeah. um, a, tra- a trach in my throat to get it where I could still breathe. And, um, and it just so happened because Roger Penske was, you know, way beyond his, um, you know, everybody had, if Roger Penske was involved, it was, it was really good. Um, and Roger owned the racetrack and there was a trauma doctor in the corner. Mm. Wow. Um, and that's, I mean, I, I don't think that's happened all the time, but it just so happened and that's where I crashed. Um, and, and obviously they had to do a trachometry, um, at before, I mean, they got me out of the car and they, they had to do that. And, um, one of the, one of the things that, um, his name was Dr. Mano and he, you know, broke out the, the stuff that he needed to, to put the trach in. Um, and it just so happened that the blade was gone. Um, and, he actually, I think, cut my um, my throat, my my um, pipe, air pipe, um, with a I think a pocket knife, um, and cow. and and got it done, and um, obviously was able to continue to breathe, and um, and then uh, was transported to um, yeah hospital over uh, in eight, uh, Ann Arbor, yeah, um, and they transported me there in a helicopter and. Um, but I don't remember, I remember the night before playing Monopoly with, um, Doug and his wife and, um, and cheating really bad <laughs> and winning. Um, so that's what you're supposed to do when you play Monopoly. Um, and little cards under the table and things like that. Um, <laughs> yeah. How do you cheat in Monopoly? Okay. I did that. Um, but I, I kind of remember doing that. And then I remember like 21 days later. You know, I always wondered, you know, usually even in the most horrible situations, uh, there's always a silver lining that sticks out uh, no matter how how many bad situations, uh, you know, stack up. It sounds to me like that doctor being in that corner, which I don't know if you if it's it it wouldn't be a fluke because, like you said, Roger Penske does everything, you know, top notch in the right way. But is it you don't survive if that doctor's not there? Is that overstating right. it? No, I'm, I mean, I, I'm pretty much 95% sure 
then I would have never survived if he wasn't there. That's for sure. Mm. Yeah. When you came back to, uh, when he came back to the sport and came back to the garage, you hadn't uh, you were wearing an eye patch over your left eye. Um, what yeah. what was the problem with with that? There was um, some vision issues. Yeah, when when the basal skull fracture, evidently um, uh, with the scratch the fracture, it kind of got one of the nerves that helped control the left eye, um, and so I. I, could, I was seeing double, so they, they natural deal. They put a patch on your eye, so you're only looking out one eye. And then also, I my vision out of my left eye wasn't very good, so um, so it was it wasn't bad having a patch on it, but um, it wasn't ideal. Let me ask a quick question. Let me back up for a second. When when you you were in a coma for 21 days, is that what you said? When did it all hit uh, I mean, you? Well, I mean, I think I think I was in a self-induced coma right. because that's what the doctors did to try to keep me from getting overly excited when I started waking up, and um, that's kind of what they do. Is what I understand now. I'm just curious, like you know, when does the situation, the gravity of the situation, actually, you know, occur to you? And did you think that you would ever even? have a decision to try to come back. I mean, at some point you had to, you had to have a decision of do I, am I done or am I going to try to get back? Do you recall if that, if, if you ever had to cross that, that path? Well, I mean, I knew that, I mean, I'd got hurt. I, I mean, I didn't know the severity of the injuries um, with a basal skull fracture. Most people die from that. Um, and I was very fortunate to be able to, have the right doctors and be able to, you know, have me, them save my life. And, um, but I was in a coma, self-induced coma. Um, and they always had the TV on, you know, in the races or whatever they could, because they thought that that could help me start, you know, coming to, mm. um, and, and it, and the first thing I remember, I, re, I kind of remember that, that, they were talking about the 28 car um, and Kenny Wallace and they were at Richmond. Um, and and I'm, I'm thinking, I can't really talk because of the trach in my throat. Um, and I'm, and I'm kind of looking, they kind of, they saw that I'd kind of woke up and, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like coming to and looking and it's like, and I'm hearing that Kenny Wallace in the 28 car. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, that's my car. Yeah. Now, now, I can I can say that I uh, I can be I was real clear about thinking that, but I really didn't know really what car I was driving. Um, but but today, I mean, I mean, uh, I mean, I think I remember that man. It's like um, my brain waves weren't right, but um, you know something's wrong because I'm not not at the racetrack. Yeah. Um, and it just so happened that I I, I woke up. And saw that, um, and I and I and I and I think I, I think I said, you know, um, I mean, I kind of put motions out that I, I kind of wanted to know what what was wrong, and um, um, and you know, my wife was there, you know, Kim, and she she just uh, I mean, she kind of was my uh, my um, soothing voice because i remember um her voice and 
Um, and she, she uh, helped me, you know, try to get through um, all that. Um, and then after we, they helicoptered me, no, I'm sorry. After that, then they got me in an airplane and took me to rehab, um, in Charlotte. And what so, was, what was the rehab like? That was something that I wanted to know. And, and how difficult was the rehab for you, uh, being, you know, race car drivers are not patient. Uh, <laughs> you're not, you don't want to wait on your body to heal. Um, when it's just when it's just good enough, it's good enough, and you're ready, ready to go back. So, how challenging was that for you after you know, after really having such a great opportunity, you're ready to go back. You want to get back in that car and prove you can still do it. So, rehab must have been very difficult. Well, rehab was very difficult. I mean, I, I had to learn how to walk because um, I really couldn't even walk, and basically, I had to kind of le- learn how to talk all the time. You'll be able to carry a sentence on, mm. and and all those things, and um, and it and it started advancing very well. Um, I remember sitting with the doctor, um, and you know the the doctor the doctor kind of said said so, and he Kim was sitting there too, and the doctor said, well, so what do you, what do you expect, and what do you want to do um, in your recovery? Right, and and I. And I said, uh, I want to get back to racing. Mm. And and then the doctor, you know, said, hey, you know, the chances of you driving your little girl to school are going to be maybe we can do that. And Kim, my wife, she got the doctor out of the room and told him, don't tell him that because then he won't have um, the, the energy and the courage to try to get back to, to go and race. And that's going to be the, his motivation. And if you have real good motivation, a lot of times you can do the unexpected. And, um, I was very fortunate that, um, the doctor never told me that again. And, <laughs> um, and, uh, Kim was helping me go through this rehab and try to try to get better. And, um, I was advancing very well as far as, the rehab. Um, I remember, uh, you know, doing the, the, the test that they, they ask you, uh, show you a picture of an animal and one, okay, what's that? And they showed me a picture of a, uh, uh, camel and, you know, it has a hump and all that stuff. And so I couldn't remember what a camel looked like. I mean, I, I remember what it looked like, but in my mind, I couldn't tell them that was a camel. Um, I, I was like, uh, it's, I know it's got two humps and, um, I, I just kind of like, it's like, um, I, I really felt like I was really stupid cause I didn't know what the camel looked like. Um, did, didn't know how to say camel. Right. Um, so obviously now I've, um, I can know how to say camel. So I'm a lot better. Good Lord. Did Kim want you back in the race car or did she want you to call it a career? She... She wanted me to have the willpower and the motivation to do exactly what I wanted to do. Um, and she also knew that the, the doctor had told me and told us that if you could ever drive um, your little girl, Jordan, to school was going to be a, a great recovery. And um, she, she wanted 
me to have that ambition to get back in a car because she knew I was going to get better to yeah. the ambition that I was going to do. Your life was going to get back in order if you aspired to be getting back in a car. So you're rehabbing literally to get back in a race car, but where? But she's thinking, you know, wherever the chips fall, at least he's yeah. aspiring. His, his bar is so high that it's going to get him back as, as close to normal as possible. Yes. I mean, I, I mean, I, I'm pretty, pretty um, sure that that's kind of what she mm, thought. And, that's, uh, that's courage, um, man. That is, there's a lot of courage in this story. I can't believe it. I mean, because you know, on a different scale, but the concussion recovery, I mean, like, I remember at a time with you, I we weren't even trying to get the, back into a race car. You were trying to be able to walk down a wedding aisle I guess the help. point with the thing that strikes me is that you even did get back in a car. I mean, a basal, right. stro- basal skull fracture. It, I, get, I mean, we know so much more about them now and, and know how, you know, potentially you know, they're most all fatal and not many people survive them. I cannot believe, and, and and with you telling us how bad off you were and what and, and what a dark place that must have been for you, I cannot believe that you wanted to wanted to get back in a car. <laughs> right. I, you know, I can't believe that you would even put yourself back in the situation that got you there. Right. So talk about that, Ernie. Was there ever, I mean, was there ever a minute where you were, like man am i doing the right thing when it when you talk about getting that race car get back in that car and you're going to have to really commit uh to driving that car to its to its limit and beyond the limit you're going to have to be willing to crash again you know you're going to have to be willing to hit things were you ever doubtful about that or or fearful even about man is this the right choice for me i never thought that i couldn't do it Never thought that I shouldn't do it. Um, okay, here's the cockiness to come out of me. Um, I had, I had kind of humbled out myself a lot, but I still, in my desire, I still wanted to get out there and win races. Um, the, the thought of doing it, um, most everybody said that uh, that's like um, like a 1% chance. Right. Um, I felt like that I could do it. I could get out there, win races again. Um, um, obviously, I couldn't walk upstairs hardly. So um, it it really was a lot of things people said. It's like, you know, they didn't they didn't tell me, but there's no way you're going to get back in a car if you can ever drive a street car again. It's going to be good. Um, so I mean, I never never thought that I couldn't do it. Well, you did get back in a car. You got back in a – you raced a truck, um, and then you got back in your cup car. Uh, you won. You won a few races. Um, that first one in 1996 at New Hampshire, right? I don't know how I, – I can't – so I yeah. I don't know how you did that. I don't know how you had such a severe injury that had debilitated you so much and – you got not only you not only rehabbed to become a normal person again, just to be able to live a normal life and 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 take care of your family, but you became an you became an elite athlete again, right. which is another level that a lot of people don't even know. And you won. You won when you're so obviously. I'm going to assume that while you're back in the car and you're winning races in that 28 car again. I know that you know 
uh, that you're 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 not the same person, you know, and yeah. you 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 still feel things about yourself that remind you of the of of your crash that you have injuries that you have permanent uh, parts or things about your body that aren't going to be the same, right? Almost definitely. Um, the 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 biggest thing that that helped motivate me to get back was Kim. Yeah. my wife and uh, Robert Yates told me said if you can ever drive a race car he, well he said that okay you get better you're able to drive again I've got a car gonna be right there for you we're gonna we're gonna help you um, be able to reach your goals that that meant a lot um, just because you, you had to have motivation um, with the with the recovery and so that helped motivate me, and um, um, and then then I got back. Um, I really kind of think that that I was about seventy five percent of what I used to be. Yeah. Um, as far as you know, what I could do with a race car, um, I could still do a um, a lot with a race car, but um, I wasn't I wasn't carrying helping carry the team, you know, because the twenty eight car was an awesome car and. Um, but, but I was kind of, kind of helping, um, I, the team was helping me, um, to be able to be the hundred percent, um, because, you know, obviously if you have a really good race car driver and you have a really good team and you have a good engine, um, it makes it better. And so I was kind of like, um, I, I don't know if I, I wasn't a hundred percent. Yeah. So, but I was, I was, um. I was probably, you know, 75% and I could still drive. I could still do pretty decent. Still better than a lot of those guys out there, even at 75%. At least that's what, uh, <laughs> that's the way well, I, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, that cockiness come out again. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, it seemed pretty easy. Um, it wasn't as easy as it used to be. Um, but, uh, I had difficulties, um, the first three or four races with an eye patch on. Um, and I ran into a few more things, um, bumped a few more cars. Um, but, uh, everybody kind of, um, they, they really didn't hold that against me. And, um, I remember the first race at North Wilkesboro and, um, being able to get in the truck and, um, I was, uh, I, I probably cost myself that race because I had told, um, cause it was my truck and I had told them, okay, you, you can, you got to tighten this thing up or loosen it up. I mean, I'm not sure exactly. Um, but you, you do that. I'm going to, I'm going to be able to win this race. Well, they weren't able to do all the changes that I wanted in the middle of the break. And so they kind of started without me because I didn't, I, and we didn't have all the changes done. And, um, so that kind of ended that day. Um, and then, but being able to drive, um, in the cup series again, um, with, uh, the 28 car, which was now the 88 car because, you know, the 28 car was still driven by Dale Jarrett. Yeah. Um, but, uh, what really helped my confidence was, is I went out there, I qualified, you know, good. I can't remember exactly what position, but I qualified in the top 10, I think. 
and it was faster than my teammate, which was Dale Jarrett. Um, so that gave me more motivation, and um, I ended up uh, running, you know, pretty competitive in the race. And I think I finished a seventh or eighth. I think I'm not sure, yeah. but um, maybe ninth. Um, but uh, it was a really, really first first outing, and I was very confident in myself. I can't believe it. Um, yeah, I'd always wondered about that wreck in Michigan, and I knew it was severe and and even worse than you know hearing some of the things you went through. It's even worse than I thought. And to to think that you came back and got healthy and you won, and then won at Michigan, yeah, in '97. Mm-hmm. I mean, an emotional emotional victory lane. Remember it like it was yesterday. To go back and conquer the yep. place that almost took your life. Yeah, um, obviously I won at Richmond. Before that, and um, Loudon, Richmond, right, and then Michigan. Um, being able to do that uh, was, you know, I mean, I, I felt like I kind of had conquered the world because, you know, went at Michigan again, the the track that almost took my life um, was able to, you know, defeat that that track because able to win, um, and very very fortunate to do that and. It was, you know, a lot the team. Um, the driver was kind of kind of 75%, but on the team really carried me. In 1999, you go back to Michigan, you had an accident in the Bush Series practice. Um, is that what sort of led to your decision to retire? And had you gotten to the point, I guess, after that crash, you probably had a little bit of a setback with your, with your head injuries, uh, which I've experienced myself, and you – I, I'm, I'm asking you, I guess, is did you get together as a family and go, you know what, I've kind of came to the, I want to do this, but my body's not going to allow me to continue. Um, I mean, I never really told the family. I never, I mean, I just, in my mind, um, I was working out that morning. And I, I think his name is Phil Horton. Um, and he was kind of my workout guy and helped me recover and stuff. Um from the second accident um and i knew that it was worse because multiple head injuries they they keep multiplying and they keep multiplying worse and worse and i felt like you know if i ever want to drive my little girl to school again i'm i'm probably going to need to be retired and i and so um i mean i uh, felt like i needed to make a press conference um, and tell them that um, I, you know, love the sport, but I love my family. So I felt like it was smart for me to retire. How hard was that? How hard was it after, you know, obviously it's difficult in the moment to make that decision and tell everybody that you're going to do that, but how difficult was the next several months, the next year, to have to uh, say goodbye to something that meant so much to you? That hadn't changed. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to stomach it still, still, but I know in my mind, I wasn't going to be able to do it again. And I wasn't, I mean, now because of all the healing has happened, um, I can do a lot of things still, but driving a race car, probably not very good. Um, and if you, if you're not able to be hundred percent, um, I just felt like I, I just need to, you know, be, honorable to my family and retire and be able to um, keep the motivation, but 
I still had the desire, but I, I, I knew I couldn't do it. Yeah. Did you ever reconsider? Did you ever go through, you know, just days where you were like, I, I, I probably have a little bit I could still offer the sport? I mean, I, I really think that, that I, in my mind, I knew I couldn't. And I knew I couldn't drive even the 75% that I was. And um, I never really did any testing after that. Um, we did some cognitive testing. And I was probably as bad as I was after the first head injury. Um, and so just, just, just knew that, that the multiple head injuries, um, it, it wasn't going to get a whole lot better. Yeah. It was just probably more than likely you knew in the back of your mind that it's probably more than likely going to happen again. And how many chances do you got before the, the, you know, your life with your family is taken away from you, which is the same question you had to deal with. Yeah. So, um, I'm, well, I'm proud of you, uh, for being able to make that choice for yourself, um, so many years ago. And we're thankful because we can sit here and talk to you today and have this conversation and you can, you can enjoy a good quality of life because of that choice that you made, uh, such a smart choice. One thing that I remember when you lived, when I was racing and we would fly to Charlotte or we would fly over to Darlington, we always crossed over your house. And one day, your house burnt down, and all your trophies were in there, and you lost your trophies. And it was a big – so it was a big deal to read that, uh, really, really heartbreaking story with everything that you'd already been through in your career and the difficulties of trying to rehab from injuries and so forth. To have something like that just up out of nowhere take away a lot of mementos and memories and trophies uh, of a great career – that had to have been so difficult, but the sport came together, the, the, the NASCAR came together and was able to help replace some of those trophies, if not most of them. What, what did that mean to you? What was that like? That, that meant, with NASCAR replacing all that stuff, um, that meant that, hey, I was obviously a part of the sport, and they remember, and being able to, to accept those kind of rewards and they knew that I basically didn't have any of my trophies. Um, being able to um, get those things, that was something that, you know, I, I mean, I never thought that would ever happen. Mm. Yeah, it must have meant a lot. Yeah. So we see a lot of those in the background behind you. Um, yeah. What do you, you know, your son races. Um, talk about yeah. that a little bit. Um, Jared is, Jared's been racing for a while now. How involved are you in that, and 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 how much joy do you do you personally get from watching your son compete? I mean, it's it's a hundred percent of joy um, being able to watch him um, race and um, knowing the talent that he's got, and knowing that you feel really bad that you're not able to bring him more opportunities, and um, so. Those are things that, that, you know, it's like, gosh, man, I wish he could get the opportunities to, you know, be able to carry their urban name on. And um, um, it just just hasn't happened. But, I mean, he he's able to go race a little bit. And we're going to race a 10,000 to win race down at Citrus County um, this weekend. Um, and the car's in the back. In the, like, I'm, I'm facing the car right now. So, um <laughs> 
so uh, I'm, I'm real involved in it. Um, I mean, I, I help every part of it. Um, I'm not, I'm not a real good crew chief because I don't remember what I used to do. Um, and so, um, we always try to have a crew chief that kind of knows the ins and outs of the super lay model stuff and yeah. had some really good ones. And, um, you know, right now, you know, uh, we, we just get one when, when we race and, um, it's kind of hard to, uh, we, we can't really afford to be able to have a full-time crew chief and be able to race full-time. So, um, this this will be our our seventh or eighth race this year. Um, Randy Renfro, we drive for him quite a bit. Um, we have it this year because of all the um, the corporate stuff. Um, but uh, I mean, it's really enjoyable to watch him. I, that's I, I kind of live through him in these days. Mm. I mean, just because I know I can't do it. Um, I know that um, if I got in the car. Um, I wasn't going to be able to be anywhere close to as fast as he is. Um, so I refused to get in the car. And um, plus, uh, he's only 120 pounds and <laughs> I'm, about, I'm about 175. So um, I can't fit in a seat. So that's good. <laughs> yeah. D- does Jared have any of his dad's conf- uh, cockiness? Um, I think so. Um, he's, he, he's, he's a, to me, he's a, a way better race car driver than I ever was. He thinks the whole time. Um, I mean, and he thinks of, it's like, you know, if I make this move, there's a chance that I'm not going to be able to, you know, finish the race. And, and one of my mottos and one of my things I tell him all the time, you have to first finish before you can first win. And so I think he listens to me on some of that stuff. Um, because I tell him that all the time. Um, and I, I just, uh, I, I kind of love to watch him race. Mm, man, it's gotta be amazing. Well, buddy, uh, it's been great to talk to you and I know you're, uh, you're enjoying life down there in Florida and good luck. Good luck at the racetrack this weekend. Appreciate you coming on here and telling us about some of the, uh, some of the most difficult days of your life. Um, we want to celebrate you and what you mean to this sport, uh, what you've meant to a lot of people's uh, lives. My life uh, uh, is better having you in it. And um, hope to be able to see you more often. Down, down there in Florida, we don't get to see you too much. The racetrack up here in North Carolina, in, in Mooresville and Race City, USA. But we miss you, and, and it's just going to be great to catch up. A lot of people are going to love to hear hear from you and, and know what you got going on, buddy. Well, I, I enjoy being on the um, Dale Earnhardt's uh, TV show. Um, <laughs> it's pretty awesome. I've always wanted to. I always wondered why nobody's called me about doing it because I was watching it. I'm like, man, why don't they call me? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and so it, it was – I mean, I, I, I really enjoy being on the show and um, feel very honored to be on the show. And then also, it's, it's great to hear from you again. Um, don't get to hear from you a lot uh, as far as because I don't go to the racetrack a lot. Yeah. Because and nowadays, it's kind of hard to get to the racetrack because of, you know, all the, um, the, the COVID stuff. And um, so I just haven't went in a while. And 
um, I'll probably go some more here in the future. Well, we'll see you there, and uh, and it'll be great to see you. So take care, man. Thank you. We, we have a great show for everybody. Thank you, and we hope to see you soon. Amen to that. Okay. Appreciate it. All right, man. Hey, and and Ernie, uh, again, that was a fantastic. P- please send uh, tell your wife thank you. She was super patient with us. We were trying to get it arranged, you know, early in the year to when we were, you know, before a pandemic hit us all, and we were trying to arrange yeah. and schedule you in here because that would have been the ultimate treat. Is yeah. is you at this table? Uh, tell her hi. Thank you so much for all the cooperation. And th- whenever this thing ends up and and you guys are in the neighborhood, we'd love to get you in the studio. Well, that'd be great. I mean, I, I, I'd love to be in the studio. And some of my friends that, that are down here, which is Danny Lasowski. Oh, yeah. He, 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 said, he said, man, we ought to make a, a weekend out of going up there, going to a couple of the shops, and going to Dell Jr.'s shop. And uh, I, I just want to watch the show in person, you know, is what Danny says. <laughs> That'd and, be badass. Uh, Danny, <laughs> Danny, the dude Lasowski, has Hell a yeah. seat yeah. in our studio anytime he wants. Yeah, yeah, kidding, and you do yeah. too. He lives, he lives right, right here in Ocala. Yeah. And um, so – we um I'm I'm got my arms right now on the poker table. We play poker all the time. <laughs> oh, um <man. laughs> and so we do that on Thursdays and Danny's gonna be back um because he's got a, a race team that he doesn't drive. Um Danny Danny crew chiefs it and makes the cars. Um and he plays poker anytime he's in town and so we're gonna we're gonna play poker again next Tuesday. Um so what you need to do is you need to show up here one time and never uh, we'll never tell you anybody that you're coming so it'd be a surprise <laughs> yeah, listen, I'd love to. the way you play monopoly apparently we're not getting in a poker <laughs> game with you we know what you're doing underneath that table <laughs> these, these guys know how to cheat way better than i do <laughs> i didn't even i didn't even know how to play poker and then they said something about going playing poker and i'm like you know there's some other friends they said hey says why don't you come to the poker game and I'm thinking, oh man, all they're doing is trying to set me up, and try to win some of my money. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, and so we do a poker game. It's fifty dollars to buy in. Um, you can't buy in again. Um, so you end up getting eliminated. I've been eliminated every time, um, but sometimes I finished in the top three. Um, one time I got money. So um, <laughs> I'd love so, to try. I'd love to come play some poker with you guys. That'd be fun. I need a trip yeah. to Florida. Especially, especially with Danny's here, because yeah. you know, I gotta say that most of the time when Danny's here, there's too much drinking um, <laughs> and and not enough playing. Um, but the the other guys take the money, and me and Lasowski, because I let him mix my drinks, <laughs> that doesn't really go That's didn't dangerous. go over very well. I'll bring my own drinks. <laughs> I'll bring my BYOB. I won't let Danny mix my drinks. Then. Well, I, don't have Danny mix your drinks, but I got beer, and um, I, you know, we we've got mixed drinks if you want it. Yes, sir. <laughs> Thank you, Ernie. Yeah. Thank you, man. Okay. Thanks. Take care. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, TEND is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. We're live. 
my favorite part of the show is here. That's right, it's Ash Jr. Brought to you by your friends at Xfinity. Podcast partner and premier partner of NASCAR. NASCAR. Let's hear what you have sent to Xfinity Racing. Leah has uh, all your guys' questions ready to go, so let's let's get started. Yep, first question. Um, we have a couple of Darlington-related questions, so we'll get those out of the way first. First one coming from Linda Lee. Should the truck series make a regular appearance appearance at Darlington? I think everybody should race at Darlington. Trucks, Xfinity, uh, super late models, whatever. Um, tour mods. Tour mods. Lawnmowers. Yes. Matter of fact. Um, Darlington, man, yeah, we should just pack the uh, week full of racing, just races and Ray Arca, all of them, K&N, what the heck ever, you know, bring, let's start the racing on Monday and not stop till Saturday night or Sunday, Sunday sometime. And, uh, you know, everybody can just hang out, camp, barbecue, watch some racing, get back down, go back to the camper, drink some beer, barbecue, get up next day, do the same thing again for like six days. How's that sound? <laughs> They're loving it. <laughs> uh, next question coming from Jason Edwards. Have you ever cleared yourself like we've seen drivers do this year and cause a wreck? What's the conversation like with the spotter, crew chief, and uh, the car owner when you make that call like that and it ends badly? It happens a thousand times a race <laughs> during on, on sim racing online. If you pass enough race cars, kind of learn. And if you bang in enough stuff, you learn where the corners of the car, where they are. And just like you kind of know your own body and how not to run it into things and bounce off of things, you know, when you walk through the door, you don't run into the door jam. You know, you learn where your body's at and how not to run into things with it. Uh, If you're trying to squeeze through a tight space, right, you know in your mind exactly when you're going to make contact with with something because you know your body. Well, when you drive a race car, you bolted in that thing really tight, and, and it becomes like an extension of your body. And you know where every edge and bumper and corner of that car is. You know it without looking. And if you drive by enough race cars, you kind of know by the speed in which you're going by the car and, and, and all those things, you kind of know when you're clear. you got a pretty good idea. Um, and sometimes... Uh, I think Truex knew it was probably pretty tight, pretty close. Also, the side draft maybe hung the nine there momentarily and slowed down that pass uh, so that it wasn't complete. Uh, And sometimes you take the chance that maybe you can force the guy out of the gas to give up the, you know, give up the spot. All those things kind of had a role in what happened there in the turn one with with Truex. But, um, yeah, I think. You know, you, you clear yourself a lot. We do rely on the spotters, but there's sort of this balance between listening to the spotter and taking that information, but also you you making most of the decisions yourself. Uh, you drive it. You got to drive the car, you know, and I can drive a race car and go buy a car and pretty much know I'm clear without even needing any help. It's nice to just be able to get that second opinion, I guess, from the spotter. Typically, yeah, race car drivers tend to clear themselves a lot in a race. All, a lot. Uh, there's a lot of that going on more than we would all, I think we'd all be surprised by, you know, how often a driver probably cleared himself. Even though the spotter was still working and clearing, uh, 
you know, I think the the spotter also knew in confidence that he was clear as well, exactly in the moment that he has, you know, eclipsed the bumper of the car that he's trying to pass. So it's just one of them things going down into turn one for, for Truex and, and Chase where Martin was like, man, I'm, I think I might be clear, might probably, maybe not, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just go in there and I need this, I need the spot. It's now or never, and hopefully Chase lifts. And if there's contact, I don't think Martin think it, thought it was going to send them both into the fence like it did, even if they did get together. But it ended up as bad as it possibly could be for both of those guys. Our next question comes from Matt Slaga. I'm going to Atlanta this weekend and doing the NASCAR racing experience. I'll be driving five minutes on the track. Do you have any advice? Five minutes. Man, try to make it, try to, you know, stay out there longer. I don't know. <laughs> what are they going to do? Charge you more? Um, I would probably say that uh, for Atlanta, they're probably going to have, for five minutes, they're, they're probably going to be pretty strict about uh, obviously how fast you go, but also where you are on the racetrack. They tend to paint these marks on the track, and are, they're like, hey, straddle these marks, right? Don't, don't, we don't want you next to the apron. We don't want you up against the wall. and let, They're not going to let you kind of do your own thing. They're going to tell you to stay right in the middle of the track to avoid any kind of issue. But try to figure out if you can get down into turn one a little low, right next to the apron if possible. And also in turns three and four, how bumpy it is through that part of the track. Getting down into turn one, there's a big bump and a couple of, there's a series of sort of wavy, very challenging uh, bumps in the bottom of the racetrack next to the apron. So I'd check that out. Um, turns three and four is, is a similar sort of wavy all the way through there. It's kind of like the car goes over these, these hills. So they're not necessarily bumps, but they really upset the race car when you're going through there at 150 miles an hour. Uh, you won't be doing that, but you still get an understanding of just how kind of un imperfect, you know, the track is. And when you're watching it on TV, if you've never been in a car, you don't see that, right? You just see the car go through the corner and go, eh, it looks relatively smooth, all right? But once you get out there in a car and you can kind of test it out, you, you learn that the tracks are actually quite imperfect and there's a lot of what some may call character in those in the surface so i'd, ch I'd check that part out with just the five minutes that you have <laughs> <laughs> our next question coming from travis elkins he wants to know who are some of your favorite stand-up comedians um my favorite stand-up comedians um richard pryor was one um eddie murphy man you know, I kind of, I don't know. I haven't been watching much stand-up comedy over the last several years, but, man, I was kind of into it way back in the day. Like I said, the two guys I mentioned, Richard Pryor and Eddie Murphy, are old school. Their stand-up, to me, is still pretty funny today. Mitch Hedberg. Mitch was all right. Um, Gaffigan. You had to be kind of, yeah. Gaffigan uh, was great. Birbiglia, Mike Birbiglia. Uh, probably listen to him, but don't know the no can't put a face with it. Um, gosh, mm, I'm gonna be upset because as soon as we get off here, I'm gonna remember one that I really liked. That's the way it always happens. Yeah. You know, um, who's we've had several uh, great comedians at the Dale Junior uh, Foundation events that we do each year. That's true. Um, 
and some not so good, honestly, <laughs> if I can be honest. Um, but that, so we used to, at the foundation event, uh, we have this foundation event each October. We're not going to have it this year, but, uh, we'll re we'll restart it back next year. But, um, we used to do concerts or, or bands. We had Alabama play one year, but then we went to comedians, you know, because that Alabama show. So yeah. we had Alabama playing and I'm serious. Like as soon as the event is over, the band starts playing like half the people left. Or even 40%, right, left the event. And so I'm standing there going, Alabama's playing, and all these people left. How, that's so messed up. So it's un American. We, um, I felt terrible. So we took a, uh, uh, we changed it up to have comedians, and everybody sticks around for whatever reason. Everybody wants to, you know, wants a good, you know, everybody loves to laugh. And so. Those have been pretty successful for our events. All right. That's all we got for that's today. It. That's it. Okay. All right, man. I like them all. Good questions. Uh, this is my favorite part of the show, Mike, and, and it's it goes really fast. That's true. It's just like Xfinity Internet. Very, very fast. Xfinity X5 keeps me connected. I honestly can't think of a better way to stay up to speed with NASCAR and Dirty Mo Media and everything else. You heard it here, folks. Don't forget, Dale's here at the table every week to answer your questions. So get those brains working, get creative, and hit us up at, at Xfinity Racing on Twitter using the hashtag AskJunior for a chance to hear from Dale Jr. himself. A big thanks to Xfinity for being a premier partner of NASCAR. We love talking about originals on the show, and today we have a doozy. Valvoline is a big part of our show, and they're the ones that are getting us talking about some of the originals of our sport because they are the original motor oil. So let's talk about Jake Elder. Oh, yeah, an original there. Better known as Suitcase, suitcase Jake. Suitcase Jake because he would change teams all the time, and he basically just carried a suitcase around because you never knew when he was going to leave and go to the next team. Mm -hmm. He had a suitcase <laughs> very close. On the ready. His career started with Petty Enterprises. He was a mechanic or crew chief for some of the best drivers in our sport. Fred Lorenzen, Darrell Waltrip, Benny Parsons, Parnelli Jones, Bobby Allison, A.J. Foyt, Ricky Rudd, Terry Labonte, my dad, during his championship year of 1980 for part of the season, before he packed his suitcase and left. And left. <laughs> he worked with Holman Moody and was part of the team that brought Mario Andretti the 1967 Daytona 500 win. He had a big connection with my grandfather, Robert G., and worked with him for a while. Also, the championship crew chief for David Pearson in 68 and 69. Yeah. Jake had 44 wins on record as a crew chief at the cup level. Jack Roush said that he could chase demons from a race car. Wow, that, I guess that's a compliment. <laughs> After Dad's first win... He uh, he told Dad, "Stick with me, kid, and we'll have diamonds as big as horse turds." As one would always say, you know. That's Here's a salute to you, suitcase Jake, a true original like Valvoline. They invented racing oil. Valvoline, the original motor oil. Last call. Last call. Great show. Uh, your open segment was insightful, Mike Ernie Irvin incredibly emotional uh interview there that hit me on a lot of levels great ass junior um so let's go with a beer fact why not 
Beer has been around for a while. All right? Not as long as Valvoline. Well, probably longer. <laughs> probably longer, right? They're the original. <laughs> since around 3500 BC. Beer's been around since then. Wow. According to the Ancient History Encyclopedia, beer was once considered more healthy than water. Dang. I think a lot of people still feel strongly about that. Yeah. It's safer to drink because harmful microorganisms were cooked out in the process, and water in those days wasn't as clean. Straight out of the... So water has now become cleaner and... and Straight out that Nile. They didn't have filtered water back then, did they? And now this is more (laughs) healthy. Plus, beer contained nutrients that other drinks of the day did not have. That's pretty interesting stuff. Go get you some Dirty Mo swag. Throwback T-shirts from Ross Chastain's number 77 Dylan Hart Tribute and Dirty Mo Media sponsored Chevy is available now. The diecast too, all at DirtyMoMedia.com. That's right. All right. A few times to see this episode this week with Ernie Irvin as our guest. I cannot wait to see some of the pictures that the team Brian and those guys are going to oh, pull together. Awesome. Our usual time on Wednesday at 6 p.m., also, another showing at 9.30 p.m. on Friday, and then Saturday at 12.30 p.m. lunchtime. So, three showings this week with a great guest. I think it deserves it. Yep. All right. Ernie Irvin, man. Another awesome history lesson. Coming into Richmond this weekend. Should be a lot of fun. One-day show for everybody. We have the Xfinity race and the Cup race doubleheader kind of fun and doubleheader thing going on there. It's going to be a long day for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. I'm 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 excited. I got a great week ahead of me. Good, good. I'm excited. Drink some lemon lemon juice and tea and get Drink, that no, voice no, box no, ready. No, no, beer. Ken it's Squire Ken Squire here is. Did we be talk coming. about my eBay store last week? On yes. The show? yes, we did. did I you had, you had a few bites. I had a few wait, wait, bites. wait. Did you start it? Oh yeah. Oh shoot! So you had the steel in the we works. We started it. All right, I want to know about it. I got, a few, I got a few. Brand, I got a few things. I don't want to tell what they are because then people are going to know it's my store. Oh, I thought mm. that was the point. No. That's what I'm you said selling, last week. I'm not going to be like, hey, Dylan Hart Jr., buy my junk. Oh, so you're just like, <laughs> oh, I'm Farmer Ned, and here's my It's crap. me and a friend, so we have a we have a, a store together that is not tied to anyone, anyone's identity. It's just oh. so. I still want to know it. you got to tell me. I will. Off camera. Okay. Y'all have a great week. Check out Dirty Mo Media on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Dirty Mo.